In the first lecture, uh, I said some very general things uh, about faith and reason uh, based on John Paul II's encyclical uh, of that uh, title. Uh, earlier as well, I mentioned a, a, a fundamental scriptural passage uh, when this uh, subject comes up of the relationship between faith and reason, knowing something and believing something, uh, namely the opening chapter of Paul's epistle uh, to the Romans, uh, 1920 verses, uh, in which uh, St. Paul, after chiding the Romans uh, for their misbehavior, the pagan Romans for their misbehavior, uh, he then says that this behavior is inexcusable. Huh? And uh, then he explains why he is making that judgment. That is, they get no excuse. Uh, there's no excuse for them acting in that way. Why? Because Paul says man can, pagan Romans can, from the things, and you too, man can from the things that are made, the world around us, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. Now from time immemorial, uh, that has been taken uh, as uh, an indication that uh, Paul is acknowledging that the human mind is capable of rising to knowledge of God. And of course, he's indicating that that has moral implications as well. That's the point of the passage. Because God exists, you shouldn't act that way. Because you're the creatures of God, you should not be uh, acting in the way that he has um, re reviewed uh, for them. Now, anyone, uh, certainly from early times on to uh, contemporary times, uh, who reads that passage and uh, thinks of uh, uh, the situation in which Paul finds himself is going to have his mind drawn uh, to uh, the achievements uh, of ancient philosophy. Uh, the golden age of Greek philosophy was the fourth century BC when we had a sequence of uh, philosophers, thinkers, uh, pursuers of truth uh, in Athens, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was the best of times as far as philosophy uh, went. And those men, uh, the positive achievements of those men, uh, continue to influence uh, those who uh, study uh, philosophy. And they had a tremendous, Aristotle particularly, had a tremendous influence uh, during the Middle Ages on Thomas Aquinas, uh, for, uh, for example. Uh, Plato, not so much, by the sheer accident uh, that uh, most of the medievals uh, were not uh, able to read Greek, and until these texts were translated into Latin, they weren't going to be uh, available to them. Aristotle was translated uh, into uh, Latin much sooner and in uh, almost completion uh, than, uh, than Plato. And those who studied, Christian believers who studied uh, Aristotle and later Plato and looked at uh, their arguments uh, on behalf of such things as the immortality of the soul. Death is not the end for a human being. Uh, and their arguments for uh, the, uh, the existence of God. Huh? Uh, these were 
uh, brooded over and studied and commented on throughout the centuries that philosophy has uh, uh, captured the minds and imaginations uh, of men. Aristotle was a Macedonian uh, who had come to Athens to study with, uh, with Plato. Uh, he was a pagan. He was a pagan in the sense that he was neither a Jew nor a Christian, uh, couldn't have been a Christian in the uh, uh, 4th century BC. Uh, and he had never heard of the revealed uh, religion of uh, Christianity. Uh, later in, uh, in the fourth century, when Augustine is considering uh, the way in which philosophers were able to uh, say such uh, uh, and prove, argue for such marvelous uh, truths uh, about God and the nature of God, uh, he toyed for a long time with the idea that they must have gotten hold of the Jewish Bible and they were, they were relying on that. But finally, uh, late, uh, uh, he abandoned that. So there's just no way in which uh, uh, I can continue to maintain that Plato had contact uh, with, uh, with Jewish thought. So what remained? That here's Plato and Aristotle without any help uh, from Revelation uh, coming to knowledge uh, of, uh, of God. And uh, that, uh, that's the glory uh, for them of, uh, of, the, of the pursuit of truth. It's the point in telos, the end, the goal of philosophizing, to arrive at such knowledge as the human mind is capable of knowledge of God. Huh? And those arguments, you, you, you may uh, know some of them, they sound, they're often given in kind of telegraphic form, a couple of sentences, uh, whatever is moved is moved by another, it's impossible to have an infinite series of moved movers. Therefore, uh, there must be an unmoved mover, a first unmoved mover. And that's God, as Thomas will add when he uh, recapitulates that proof. And he gives it in very short form uh, at the beginning of his Summa Theologiae. But to understand that proof and to know that the premises are true uh, requires a lot of work. Uh, and, um, uh, and not just understanding uh, three sentences. But that is the, that is the, um, the glory, as I say, and the, and the goal uh, of uh, philosophizing as understood by Plato and Aristotle. This is what our mind was made for. This is what, this is what we want to focus on, the really real, uh, as, uh, as uh, Plato uh, put it. Now, when we crank forward to uh, John Paul II's uh, faith in and reason, uh, you will find him uh, saying, well, you know, I'm going to talk about philosophy. And it's as if he, he's trying to um, uh, reassure his reader, don't get nervous, I'm going to talk about philosophy. And then he says what he means by philosophy. And he does it in a way that is meant to assure any reader uh, that he's been doing it already. He's been, he's been engaged in philosophy. Why? Because philosophy can be summed up, philosophizing, uh, the Pope says, can be summed up in the, the great questions. What does it all mean? Huh? Why are we here? What is right and what is wrong? Uh, is death the end? What can we hope for? Those are big questions. And they're not too big for anybody. You hear them talk uh, uh, down at McDonald's, young men and women uh, uh, talk about them and, uh, and uh, uh, consider them, uh, old people uh, uh, think about them. What's it all mean? Uh, we can't help but ask those questions. And the Pope says, you're doing philosophy, uh, in effect, when you ask those questions. Now, anyone who teaches introductory philosophy 
perhaps begins in that way. Uh, to reassure the students that they've already been engaged in asking the kinds of questions that are going to be uh, dealt with in the, uh, in the course. But the Pope goes beyond that in, in uh, Faith and Reason, uh, and he says it's not just that there are certain questions uh, that sooner or later every human being is going to pose. There are answers to those questions which are commonly held answers to the question, what does it all mean? Does God exist? What's the difference between good and evil? Is there a common uh, agreement uh, on those matters? Uh, the Pope says there is, but it's implicit. He calls it, it's as if we've come upon uh, an implicit philosophy or answers to those questions which implicitly all human beings hold. And it can be shown that that's, that's a tenable position. You can show that, indeed, uh, that lurking uh, in um, just about anyone's attitude uh, towards the world and statements about the world and about himself, lurking uh, in uh, those, uh, uh, that judgment, his personal philosophy, will be a recognition uh, of, of these truths, implicit, even uh, in cases where the surface philosophy is denying uh, those truths. But that's a long story, and it's uh, what keeps philosophers employed, uh, showing that other philosophers are, uh, are wrong. The, uh, the church is interested in philosophy in that classical sense, because in that classical sense, philosophy is not just word games. It's not uh, studying what the scientist does or uh, what the artist does and so forth, those things too, but it's aimed at it's aimed at such knowledge as the human mind, unaided by revelation, can come to of God the Creator. So it is, it's, a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, an important uh, complement uh, to the kind of knowledge that we have of God thanks to uh, revelation. Thomas Aquinas uh, put it this way uh, in terms of the relationship between philosophical uh, knowledge and uh, revelation that there are two kinds of truths about God. Uh, there are those truths about God that the philosophers uh, arrived uh, at, that there is a God, uh, that there is only one God, that God is the maker of all else, that God is intelligent. And so it, the list usually just says, etc. He doesn't intend to give a complete uh, list, but you can see already there are some very important uh, things that are uh, attributed to philosophers as knowledge that they gain uh, as a result of their studies using, using their mind as it was meant to be used. Eh? There's that kind of truth then. And what, how does the philosopher prove something? He finally has to appeal to what everybody knows, what everybody knows. If he can't bring uh, a theory that uh, originally would sound to us maybe pretty bizarre, if he can't uh, remove our uh, sense of strangeness by showing that it's derivable ultimately from things that nobody would deny, then he loses. Huh? He loses. We don't. Uh, if he can't do that, he's not doing his job. So the philosophical discourse is always ultimately based on truths which are known by every human person. And the whole point of argument is to reduce, to analyze uh, truths back into uh, those basic 
uh, axiomatic and easily grasped, self-evident uh, truths. And as I say, if the philosopher can't do that, uh, he's failed at his job. And we can't just sign on and say, well, I'll learn how to talk that way myself. You haven't proved anything to me, but it sounds kind of fancy. Uh, that, that wouldn't be a serious way of agreeing with the philosopher or adopting uh, a philosophy. That's one kind of truth Thomas says about God. The other kind of truth is those truths about God which we would never, no human being would have had any inkling of if they hadn't been revealed to us by God himself in Scripture, in Jesus. Without that, these truths would, would just not occur to us that there are three persons in one divine nature, that there are two natures in the person of Christ, human nature and a divine nature that death is not the end, and then not just in the sense that uh, philosophers held that the soul is, is such that it's not going to cease to be, but what believers believe, what we believe, is that ultimately soul and body will be reunited, that the promise of the resurrection uh, in uh, Christ's own resurrection, that triumph over death means all of us, now will eventually be reunited and be a complete human person that requires both a body and a soul. That would never enter uh, into uh, the minds of a, of a philosopher. It did into some myths, of course, uh, the transmigration of souls and so forth, but that's very different uh, from, uh, from uh, res uh, resurrection. Uh, it kind of makes the soul a entity all by itself that just takes up habitation in different uh, bodies o over time. But uh, if you think about it, that's not at all uh, similar or analogous even to the resurrection. But I mentioned now just those truths because they, they jump out at us. We're familiar with them. And of course, we say the, we bless ourselves and remind ourselves of the Trinity. Uh, we uh, uh, are constantly aware of the fact that when we're reading the New Testament, when we read what Jesus says, he's not just a wise man that we're listening to. This is the Son of God. Huh? This is the way, the truth, and the life. So we attend to him uh, in, in, in a way that acknowledges that he is uh, both human and, uh, and divine. And of course, we live in the hope uh, of the uh, resurrection. When we mourn our dead, it's, uh, we don't, do not mourn as those without hope, uh, as uh, St. Paul said. Why? Because we know that uh, eventually um, the soul of the departed will be uh, reunited with, uh, with its body. Okay. Those three truths and of the many that have been revealed, we just take those and we can contrast them uh, with the truths that are ascribed to the, uh, about God, that are ascribed to the philosopher, that God exists. Well, of course, uh, of course the, uh, uh, the believer believes that, but he believes God exists as three persons. Huh? God exists in Jesus. Huh? That's uh, a lot more than, uh, than what the philosopher would say, isn't it? Uh, that um, there's only one God. Of course, there's one divine nature, uh, uh, but there are three persons uh, uh, in that, uh, in that uh, nature. That would not occur to a philosopher. So these look like very different kinds of truth about God. And that's, uh, we would say that's why Thomas says, duplex as veritas churcadeum. There's two kinds of truth uh, about, uh, about God. Now, we can ask ourselves, 
does this mean that we just end up with two baskets, so to speak, of uh, truths about God, uh, those that philosophers can achieve and you and I just using our minds and following their arguments or, or devising arguments of our own uh, that are equally uh, sound uh, that we could arrive at, and on the other hand, totally different from them, totally divorced from them, would be the truths of revelation. Huh? Well, a moment's reflection, uh, well, two moments, reflection would indicate to us that that won't work. They're not, they're not separated like that. Why? Because when you think about it, the truths that the philosopher comes to know are embedded in the truths that we as believers believe. Yeah? That there's only one God is, of course, uh, embedded in uh, the very opening phrase of the, uh, of the, of the creed, uh, that... Uh, 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 well, uh, whatever the philosopher can come to know about God, we say it's not lying over here separate, but we would find any believer already believes that. He implicitly believes that. He's not saying, gee, I, I, I think there are three persons and one God, but I wonder if God exists. Huh? I mean, that, that would be impossible. So we're faced... And Thomas uh, got kind of excited about this, uh, insofar as he got excited. Uh, the notion that these philosophical truths, naturally knowable truths about God, uh, are all part of the package, so to speak, of revelation. Part of the package of, uh, of revelation. So from that, one might say, and, and it was said by some of the early fathers, who needs philosophy? Huh? Who needs this approach of reason, unaided reason, uh, to, uh, to, to God when we've got it all? And some of the fathers made that point that what the ancient philosophers sought so laboriously over their long lives is now in the possession of the simplest of human beings immediately upon uh, embracing uh, the faith. Huh? So it might seem that philosophy has been made obsolete uh, by, this, uh, by this fact. And if we think that, it's, uh, I think, I think uh, anyone is going to say, well, who needs philosophy, for heaven's sakes? They've got it all here. Uh, and uh, uh, I, don't, I don't have to go uh, looking through those very difficult uh, arguments and uh, arriving at truths that are already hold on the basis of, uh, uh, of the faith. Well, against that uh, impulse, uh, so to think, uh, we have the long tradition again of the church's interest in these philosophical efforts uh, to know and to say things about God. Huh? Why? Huh? Well, what Thomas did when he noticed that you had these two kinds of truths about God included in, so to speak, the package of revelation, he gave a label uh, to, to uh, the two kinds of truth. And he said, those truths uh, that are held on the basis of philosophical arguments, we're going to call them preambles of faith. Huh? And those truths which uh, can only be held on the basis of uh, reason uh, we're on faith, we're going to call those the mysteries, the mysteries of, uh, of faith. So then the question arises in, in this terminology, what is the relationship between what Thomas calls preambles of faith and the mysteries of faith? 
It's another way of saying what's the relationship between uh, philosophical truths about God and, and um, divinely revealed truths about God or truths that could only be held on the basis of uh, divine uh, revelation. Uh, the, the answer to that is, uh, is, is, is uh, not uh, at all uh, complicated in one sense, in another sense uh, uh, is the sort of task that keeps people like myself busy, uh, as I say, throughout a, 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 long, a long life. But a couple of things we want to be uh, very uh, clear about uh, is this. When Thomas calls the truths about God that philosophers uh, or anyone just using his mind can come to about God, uh, when he calls those preambles, we shouldn't think that by that he means that you can derive the mysteries from those preambles, that they're premises from which you can conclude that since we know God exists, we can conclude that uh, there's a trinity of person. Uh, that isn't what preambles uh, means at all. Uh, it means rather that uh, it captures the notion of they're embedded, they're at the base of, included in uh, the mysteries uh, of, uh, uh, of faith. Now, from the point of view uh, of one who has accepted uh, uh, divine revelation, uh, has received the grace of faith, uh, and who is thinking about these matters, uh, he is going to, uh, if he's St. Thomas Aquinas, he's going to come up with this kind of argument to show why it is reasonable for us to accept truths. Many Protestants will reject uh, the notion of a philosophical knowledge of God precisely because uh, they fear that it's trying to establish on the basis of just human reason the truths of faith. Uh, and they're right to have that fear. If that's what was going on uh, by acknowledging that there is such a thing as philosophical uh, knowledge of God, philosophical theology, uh, as it's uh, often called, uh, that if it were the case that by acknowledging that we were kind of smudging the difference between believing on the one hand and knowing uh, on the other, then uh, there would be uh, legitimate uh, reason uh, to reject. But since that is not entailed, uh, one is not saying uh, that uh, one who has achieved philosophically these few truths about God uh, will deduce from those uh, the mysteries of, of Christianity. So it would be, it would be a reason for alarm if uh, a, a Christian believer thought another Christian believer was saying, we're going to be able on the basis of these natural arguments that any human being could follow, we're going to be able to establish the basic truths of Christianity, the mysteries of Christianity. Of course he'd be alarmed. What would be the point of faith uh, if it were just an expedient in this life so that smart people uh, could uh, advance uh, beyond uh, the need to believe and say, oh, I used to believe the Trinity, but now I've got this great argument for it and I know it now. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, uh, Kierkegaard, whom I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, thought he found in uh, Hegel, uh, the famous uh, German philosopher uh, who held that uh, philosophy is the truth of religion. Yeah? Uh, that is not the implication, the traditional implication uh, of the notion of preambles of faith. So what is its importance? What is its importance? It's not as if 
uh, if, you, if you establish these truths, philosophical truths about God, then you can deduce the mysteries of the faith. Well, you could say that removes an obstacle to belief. I mean, if you didn't think there was a God at all, it'd be quite a jump into uh, accepting uh, God as uh, revealed in Christ. Uh, but if you already hold there is a God, and it's a matter of identifying, huh? thanks to faith, uh, that God with uh, uh, the God that uh, Jesus uh, 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 proclaimed. So it might play that kind of removing the obstacle role, but it's not going to play the role of premises from which we deduce uh, the truths of faith. So what is its importance? This, I think. From the point of view of the believer, uh, he can look at what I've called the package of revelation. And he sees and acknowledges such truths as the Trinity and the Incarnation and the Resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, and so forth. Uh, he acknowledges those not because he has deduced them from something that he and everybody else knows, but because God said so. Huh? He's accepting them on, in trust on the word of God for their truth. And with the promise, of course, that one day, uh, he will see even as he's seen, and faith and hope will pass away and only charity will remain. But in this life, uh, as long as we live, faith is the only basis on which we can hold uh, what Thomas calls the mysteries uh, of the faith. But the believer notices uh, that also included in the package of Revelation are the implicitly are these truths that philosophers have, have come to know. And from that, the believer now, this is not a motive for belief. This is not something that um, moves one into the faith. But looking at it through the eyes of the faith, he's able to conclude that it is reasonable to accept as true the mysteries which he cannot in this life comprehend or understand to be true. And the basis for that uh, assurance for the believer is that some of the things that God has revealed, the preambles, can be known to be true. And if they can be known to be true, they are intelligible. And that is, for the believer, an assurance uh, that the, all the things that God has revealed are intelligible. This argument that I'm suggesting is, uh, we might call it an argument by sampling. Uh, you know, when a gondola of grain comes into, uh, uh, into a mill, into an elevator, uh, there are people there who push pipes uh, into the gondola, the car of grain, and they pull it out, and that sample stands for the whole car. They take several samples, but they, they grade the grain uh, in that car on the basis of that sample. The argument I'm suggesting is something like that. But it is not notice, it is not an argument which is meant to uh, establish believing, but it is something in an argument that a believer uh, would fashion to assure himself uh, that uh, uh, though he cannot see it now, it's reasonable for him to accept uh, all of these uh, uh, mysteries of faith. Uh, because the faith is not an invitation, of course, to accept funny statements. Huh? It's not an invitation to accept uh, contradictory uh, uh, truths. It's uh, an invitation to accept the truth itself. The object of faith, as St. Thomas insists in his Summa, is the truth, the truth that God is. So the idea that our minds are locking into nonsense or absurdities when we believe, uh, Thomas would take to be uh, impious. 
But it does, those excessive statements that go, some of them way back to patristic times, are understandable when we realize that on reflection, we have to acknowledge that uh, faith is a testing. We see now through a glass darkly, huh? but then the promise is uh, face uh, to faith. Now, we wouldn't want to end uh, this little intro uh, with the suggestion that <coughs> the point of faith is to give us uh, uh, things to puzzle over. Uh, it's first of all addressed to us uh, as uh, an invitation of a way to live. Huh? Uh, our acceptance of it is not just cerebral, but we have minds, we have minds. And some believers, at least, uh, for their sins, uh, must uh, uh, use their minds in this somewhat uh, cerebral way and uh, ponder, ponder uh, the truths that God has uh, revealed and compare them with things that human beings know. This is one of the great tasks, one of the tasks of the, uh, the theologian, the man who starts out as from his premises with truths that God has revealed, consequently truths that only a believer uh, would hold. And then from those, he fashions arguments which will move the mind of another believer. But he wouldn't expect, shouldn't expect that such arguments as he devises would bring someone from non-belief to belief. Uh, the theologian, that's, that's, that's one of his uh, uh, noble uh, uh, in St. Thomas Aquinas, who is the patron uh, not only of uh, our International Catholic University, but of many uh, uh, institutions of higher learning in this country and around the world, uh, was both a philosopher uh, and a theologian. And primarily a theologian, of course, that being the more important uh, task. Uh, but some of us uh, specialize a bit. We do just uh, philosophy and kind of look into theology the way Moses looked at the promised land <laughs> and uh, kind of envy uh, the people uh, who, are, who are engaged in it. Uh, a final thing that might occur to you uh, is this. Why do you say uh, that there isn't any proof for uh, revealed truths. What about the miracles? Huh? What was the point of the miracles if it wasn't meant to convince uh, the uh, witnesses of those miracles that Christ was human and divine? So they would have known it, wouldn't they, on the basis of those miracles, so they wouldn't have to believe that Christ was human and divine. Is there any point in this life where one could say that one knows what later generations uh, in the early uh, century, is there any way that one could say they knew and we have to believe? Well, and we'd think of St. Thomas the Apostle not be having been uh, with the other apostles when the risen Christ appeared. He's skeptical. He right? said, I won't, I won't believe that until I see the wounds. And uh, so Jesus shows up when Thomas is there. Huh? And Thomas immediately says, my Lord and my God. Huh? He doesn't do any testing at all. Uh, and Jesus says, remember, that, well, blessed are those who uh, believe who have not seen. Huh? And so the suggestion is Thomas is seeing. Well, he sees the resurrected body of Christ. Does that mean he knows uh, in, in, in a strong sense uh, that uh, the resurrection has occurred? This is a vast topic. 
Uh, but I wanted, I wanted to, uh, to mention it to indicate that that, like the kind of argument, uh, uh, the appeal to miracles, like the argument that I suggested could be devised uh, from the package of Revelation, uh, is good. It's a, it's a good argument for believers. But a lot of people, remember, witness those miracles. Think of all the people who watch Lazarus come forth from the tomb. Did they all believe in Jesus? Huh? So the miracle, uh, just the wondrous acts that, that Christ performed, didn't have for all the automatic uh, response of accepting Christ as God. That means that those who accepted him did so on the basis of faith, the graces of faith, and not on the basis of experiential uh, knowledge. The case of Thomas the Doubter, uh, Thomas Didymus, as he's been called over the centuries, uh, doesn't uh, conflict uh, with that, uh, uh, with that uh, 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 truth, that no believer uh, in this life has known the truths of faith. Other problems that will arise, St. Paul is caught up into uh, the heavens and is given a vision. Does that mean he no longer has to believe? These are, these are um, uh, problems that uh, 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 we, can, we can pursue, but they do not, they do not uh, change the fact that in this life, uh, for us, belief is, so to speak, terminal. Uh, throughout our lives, the only way we can hold these truths that uh, God has revealed, the mysteries, uh, is by reliance on uh, the divine faith, the grace of faith that we've been given, and accept these as the word of God. The word both in the sense of the uh, words of scripture and the word that uh, Jesus himself is, uh, who of course uh, remains among us uh, in, the, uh, in the Eucharist and uh, remains, his grace remains available to us in the sacraments uh, of the church. So he, stay, he, he continues to be Emmanuel. So when we're talking about faith and belief, we're not referring ourselves back to distant historical events. We're talking about the presence of God among us uh, and uh, as he will be in the church uh, till uh, the end of time. <laughs>